Section 4 of The Prussian Officer and Other Stories This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Prussian Officer and Other Stories by D. H. Lawrence The Thorn in the Flesh Chapters 1 and 2 Chapter 1 A wind was running, so that occasionally the poplars whitened as if a flame flew up them. The sky was broken and blue among moving clouds. Patches of sunshine lay on the level fields, and shadows on the rye and the vineyards. In the distance, very blue, the cathedral bristled against the sky, and the houses of the city of Metz clustered vaguely below, like a hill. Among the fields, by the lime-trees, stood the barracks, upon bare, dry ground, a collection of round-roofed huts of corrugated iron, where the soldiers' nasturtiums climbed brilliantly. There was a tract of vegetable garden at the side, with the soldiers' yellowish lettuces and rows and at the back the big, hard drilling-yard surrounded by a wire fence. At this time in the afternoon the huts were deserted, all the beds pushed up, the soldiers were lounging about under the lime-trees, waiting for the call to drill. Backman sat on a bench in the shade, that smelled sickly with blossom. Pale green, wrecked lime-flowers were scattered on the ground. He was writing his weekly postcard to his mother. He was a fair, long, limber youth, good-looking. He sat very still indeed, trying to write his postcard. His blue uniform, sagging on him as he sat bent over the card, disfigured his youthful shape. His sunburnt hand waited motionless for the words to come. Dear Mother was all he had written. Then he scribbled mechanically, Many thanks for your letter with what you sent. Everything is all right with me. We're just off to drill on the fortifications. Here he broke off and sat suspended, oblivious of everything, held in some definite suspense. He looked again at the card, but he could write no more. Out of the knot of his consciousness no word would come. He signed himself and looked up as a man looks to see if anyone has noticed him in his privacy. There was a self-conscious strain in his blue eyes and a pallor about his mouth where the young, fair moustache glistened. He was almost girlish in his good looks and his grace. But he had something of military consciousness, as if he believed in the discipline for himself and found satisfaction in delivering himself to his duty. There was also a trace of youthful swagger and daredevilry about his mouth and his limber body, but this was in suppression now. He put the postcard in the pocket of his tunic and went to join a group of his comrades who were lounging in the shade, laughing and talking grossly. Today he was out of it. He only stood near to them for the warmth of the association. In his own consciousness something held him down. Presently they were summoned to ranks. The sergeant came out to take command. He was a strongly built, rather heavy man of forty. His head was thrust forward, sunk a little between his powerful shoulders, and the strong jaw was pushed out aggressively. But the eyes were smouldering, the face hung slack and sodden with drink. He gave his orders in brutal, barking shouts, and the little company moved forward out of the wire-fenced yard to the open road, marching rhythmically, raising the dust. Backman, one of the inner file of four deep, marched in the airless ranks, half suffocated with heat and dust and enclosure. Through the moving of his comrades' bodies he could see the small vines dusty by the roadside, the poppies among the tares fluttering and blown to pieces, the distant spaces of sky and fields all free with air and sunshine. But he was bound in a very dark enclosure of anxiety within himself. He marched with his usual ease, being healthy and well-adjusted. 
but his body went on by itself his spirit was clenched apart and ever the few soldiers grew nearer and nearer to the town ever the consciousness of the youth became more gripped and separate his body worked by a kind of mechanical intelligence a mere presence of mind they diverged from the high road and passed in single file down a path among trees all was silent and green and mysterious with shadow of foliage and long green undisturbed grass then they came out in the sunshine on a moat of water which wound silently between the long flowery grass at the foot of the earthworks that rose in front in terraces walled smooth on the face but all soft with long grass at the top marguerite daisies and ladies slipper glimmered white and gold in the lush grass preserved here in the intense peace of the fortifications thickets of trees stood round about occasionally a puff of mysterious wind made the flowers and the long grass that crested the earthworks above bow and shake as with signals of oncoming alarm the group of soldiers stood at the end of the moat in their light blue and scarlet uniforms very bright the sergeant was giving them instructions and his shout came sharp and alarming in the intense untouched stillness of the place they listened finding it difficult to make the effort of understanding then it was over and the men were moving to make preparations on the other side of the moat the ramparts rose smooth and clear in the sun sloping slightly back along the summit grass grew and tall daisies stood ledged high like magic against the dark green of the tree-tops behind the noise of the town the running of tram-cars was heard distinctly but it seemed not to penetrate this still place the water of the moat was motionless in silence the practice began one of the soldiers took a scaling ladder and passing along the narrow ledge at the foot of the earthworks with the water of the moat just behind him tried to get a fixture on the slightly sloping wall-face there he stood small and isolated at the foot of the wall trying to get his ladder settled at last it held and the clumsy groping figure in the baggy blue uniform began to clamber up the rest of the soldiers stood and watched occasionally the sergeant barked a command slowly the clumsy blue figure clambered higher up the wall-face backman stood with his bowels turned to water the figure of the climbing soldier scrambled out on to the terrace up above and moved blue and distinct among the bright green grass the officer shouted from below the soldier tramped along fixed the ladder in another spot and carefully lowered himself on to the rungs backman watched the blind foot groping in space for the ladder and he felt the world fall away beneath him the figure of the soldier clung cringing against the face of the wall cleaving groping downwards like some unsure insect working its way lower and lower fearing every movement at last sweating and with a strained face the figure had landed safely and turned to the group of soldiers but still it had a stiffness and a blank mechanical look was something less than human Backman stood there, heavy and condemned, waiting for his own turn and betrayal. Some of the men went up easily enough and without fear. That only showed it could be done lightly and made Backman's case more bitter. If only he could do it lightly, like that. His turn came. He knew intuitively that nobody knew his condition. The officer just saw him as a mechanical thing. He tried to keep it up, to carry it through on the face of things his inside gripped tight as yet under control he took the ladder and went along under the wall he placed his ladder with quick success and wild quivering hope possessed him then blindly he began to climb 
but the ladder was not very firm, and at every hitch a great, sick, melting feeling took hold of him. He clung on fast. If only he could keep that grip on himself, he would get through. He knew this in agony. What he could not understand was the blind gush of white-hot fear that came with great force whenever the ladder swerved, and which almost melted his belly and all his joints, and left him powerless. If once it melted all his joints and his belly, he was done. He clung desperately to himself. He knew the fear. He knew what it did when it came. He knew he had only to keep a firm hold. He knew all this. Yet when the ladder swerved and his foot missed, there was the great blast of fear blowing on his heart and bowels, and he was melting weaker and weaker in a horror of fear and lack of control, melting to fall. Yet he groped slowly higher and higher, always staring upwards with desperate face, and always conscious of the space below. But all of him, body and soul, was growing hot to fusion point. He would have to let go for very relief's sake. Suddenly his heart began to lurch. It gave a great, sickly swoop, rose, and again plunged in a swoop of horror. He lay against the wall, inert as if dead, inert, at peace, save for one deep core of anxiety, which knew that it was not all over, that he was still high in space against the wall. But the chief effort of will was gone. There came into his consciousness a small, foreign sensation. He woke up a little. What was it? Then slowly it penetrated him. His water had run down his leg. He lay there, clinging, still with shame, half-conscious of the echo of the sergeant's voice thundering from below. He waited in depths of shame, beginning to recover himself. He had been shamed so deeply. Then he could go on, for his fear for himself was conquered. His shame was known and published. He must go on. Slowly he began to grope for the rung above, when a great shock shook through him. His wrists were grasped from above, he was being hauled out of himself, up, up to the safe ground. Like a sack he was dragged over the edge of the earthworks by the large hands, and landed there on his knees, groveling in the grass to recover command of himself, to rise up on his feet. Shame, blind deep shame and ignominy, overthrew his spirit and left it writhing. He stood there, shrunk over himself, trying to obliterate himself. Then the presence of the officer who had hauled him up made itself felt upon him. He heard the panting of the elder man, and then the voice came down on his veins like a fierce whip. He shrank in tension of shame. "'Put up your heads, eyes front!' shouted the enraged sergeant, and mechanically the soldier obeyed the command, forced to look into the eyes of the sergeant." The brutal, hanging face of the officer violated the youth. He hardened himself with all his might from seeing it. The tearing noise of the sergeant's voice continued to lacerate his body. Suddenly he set back his head, rigid, and his heart leapt to burst. The face had suddenly thrust itself close, all distorted and showing the teeth, the eyes smouldering into him. The breath of the barking words was on his nose and mouth. He stepped aside in revulsion. With a scream, the face was upon him again. He raised his arm involuntarily in self-defense. A shock of horror went through him as he felt his forearm hit the face of the officer a brutal blow. The latter staggered, swerved back, and with a curious cry reeled backwards over the ramparts, his hands clutching the air. 
There was a second of silence, then a crash to water. Backman, rigid, looked out of his inner silence upon the scene. Soldiers were running. "'You'd better clear,' said one young, excited voice to him, and with immediate instinctive decision he started to walk away from the spot. He went down the tree-hidden path to the high road where the trams ran to and from the town. In his heart was a sense of vindication, of escape. He was leaving it all, the military world, the shame. He was walking away from it. Officers on horseback rode sauntering down the street. Soldiers passed along the pavement. Coming to the bridge, Backman crossed over to the town that heaped before him, rising from the flat, picturesque French houses down below at the water's edge, up a jumble of roofs and chasms of streets, to the lovely dark cathedral with its myriad pinnacles making points at the sky. He felt for a moment quite at peace, relieved from a great strain, so he turned along by the river to the public gardens. Beautiful were the heaped purple lilac trees upon the green grass, and wonderful the walls of the horse-chestnut trees, lighted like an altar with white flowers on every ledge. Officers went by, elegant and all coloured. Women and girls sauntered in the chequered shade. Beautiful it was. He walked in a vision. Free. End of chapter one. Chapter two. But where was he going? He began to come out of his trance of delight and liberty. Deep within him he felt the steady burning of shame in the flesh. As yet he could not bear to think of it. But there it was, submerged beneath his attention, the raw, steady-burning shame. It behooved him to be intelligent. As yet he dared not remember what he had done. He only knew the need to get away, away from everything he had been in contact with. But how? A great pang of fear went through him. He could not bear his shamed flesh to be put again between the hands of authority. Already the hands had been laid upon him, brutally upon his nakedness, ripping open his shame and making him maimed, crippled in his own control. Fear became an anguish. Almost blindly he was running in the direction of the barracks. He could not take responsibility of himself. He must give himself up to someone. Then his heart, obstinate in hope, became obsessed with the idea of his sweetheart. He would make himself her responsibility. Blenching as he took courage, he mounted the small, quick-hurrying tram that ran out of the town in the direction of the barracks. He sat motionless and composed, static. He got out at the terminus and went down the road. A wind was still running. He could hear the faint whisper of the rye and the stronger swish as a sudden gust was upon it. No one was about. Feeling detached and impersonal, he went down a field path between the low vines. Many little vine-trees rose up in spires, holding out tender pink shoots, waving their tendrils. He saw them distinctly and wondered over them. In a field a little way off, men and women were taking up the hay. The bullock-wagon stood by on the path, the men in their blue shirts, the women with white cloths over their heads carried hay in their arms to the cart, all brilliant and distinct upon the shorn, glowing green acres. He felt himself looking out of darkness onto the glamorous, brilliant beauty of the world around him, outside him. The baron's house, where Emily was maid-servant, stood square and mellow among trees and garden and fields. It was an old French grange. The barracks was quite near. Bachman walked, drawn by a single purpose, towards the courtyard. He entered the spacious, shadowy, sun-swept place. 
The dog, seeing a soldier, only jumped and whined for greeting. The pump stood peacefully in a corner, under a lime-tree, in the shade. The kitchen door was open. He hesitated, then walked in, speaking shyly and smiling involuntarily. The two women started, but with pleasure. Emily was preparing the tray for afternoon coffee. She stood beyond the table, drawn up, startled and challenging, and glad. She had the proud, timid eyes of some wild animal, some proud animal. Her black hair was closely banded, her grey eyes watched steadily. She wore a peasant dress of blue cotton, sprigged with little red roses, that buttoned tight over her strong maiden breasts. At the table sat another young woman, the nursery governess, who was picking cherries from a huge heap and dropping them into a bowl. She was young, pretty, freckled. "'Good day,' she said pleasantly. "'The unexpected.' Emily did not speak. The flush came in her dark cheek. She still stood watching, between fear and a desire to escape, and on the other hand joy that kept her in his presence. "'Yes,' he said, bashful and strained, while the eyes of the two women were upon him. "'I've got myself in a mess this time.' "'What?' asked the nursery governess, dropping her hands in her lap. Emily stood rigid. Backman could not raise his head. He looked sideways at the glistening, ruddy cherries. He could not recover the normal world. "'I knocked Sergeant Huber over the fortifications down in the moat,' he said. "'It was an accident, but—' and he grasped at the cherries and began to eat them, unknowing, hearing only Emily's little exclamation. "'You knocked him over the fortifications?' echoed Fräulein Hesse in horror. "'How?' Spitting the cherry stones into his hand, mechanically, absorbedly, he told them. "'Ach!' exclaimed Emily sharply. "'And how did you get here?' asked Fräulein Hesse. "'I ran off,' he said. There was a dead silence." He stood, putting himself at the mercy of the women. There came a hissing from the stove and a stronger smell of coffee. Emily turned swiftly away. He saw her flat, straight back and her strong loins as she bent over the stove. "'But what are you going to do?' said Fräulein Hesse, aghast. "'I don't know,' he said, grasping at more cherries. He had come to an end. "'You'd better go to the barracks,' she said. "'We'll get the Herr Baron to come and see about it.' Emily was swiftly and quietly preparing the tray. She picked it up, and stood with the glittering china and silver before her, impassive, waiting for his reply. Backman remained with his head dropped, pale and obstinate. He could not bear to go back. "'I'm going to try to get into France,' he said. "'Yes, but they'll catch you,' said Fräulein Hesse. Emily watched with steady, watchful grey eyes. "'I can have a try, if I could hide till tonight,' he said. Both women knew what he wanted, and they all knew it was no good. Emily picked up the tray and went out. Backman stood with his head dropped. Within himself he felt the dross of shame and incapacity. "'You'd never get away,' said the governess. "'I can try,' he said. Today he could not put himself between the hands of the military. Let them do as they liked with him tomorrow, if he escaped today. They were silent. He ate cherries.' The colour flushed bright into the cheek of the young governess. Emily returned to prepare another tray. "'He could hide in your room,' the governess said to her. The girl drew herself away. She could not bear the intrusion. "'That is all I can think of that is safe from the children,' said Fräulein Hesse. Emily gave no answer. 
Bachman stood waiting for the two women. Emily did not want the close contact with him. "'You could sleep with me,' Fräulein Hesse said to her. Emily lifted her eyes and looked at the young man, direct, clear, reserving herself. "'Do you want that?' she asked, her strong virginity proof against him. "'Yes.' "'Yes,' he said uncertainly, destroyed by shame. She put back her head. "'Yes,' she murmured to herself. Quickly she filled the tray and went out. "'But you can't walk over the frontier in a night,' said Fräulein Hesse. "'I can cycle,' he said. Emily returned, a restraint, a neutrality in her bearing. "'I'll see if it's all right,' said the governess." In a moment or two, Backman was following Emily through the square hall, where hung large maps on the walls. He noticed a child's blue coat with brass buttons on the peg, and it reminded him of Emily walking, holding the hand of the youngest child, whilst he watched, sitting under the lime-tree. Already this was a long way off. That was a sort of freedom he had lost, changed for a new, immediate anxiety. They went quickly, fearfully up the stairs and down a long corridor. Emily opened her door, and he entered, ashamed, into her room. "'I must go down,' she murmured, and she departed, closing the door softly. It was a small, bare, neat room. There was a little dish for holy water, a picture of the sacred heart, a crucifix, and a prie dieu. The small bed lay white and untouched. The wash-hand bowl of red earth stood on a bare table. There was a little mirror and a small chest of drawers. That was all. Feeling safe, in sanctuary, he went to the window, looking over the courtyard at the shimmering afternoon country. He was going to leave this land, this life. Already he was in the unknown. He drew away into the room. The curious simplicity and severity of the little Roman Catholic bedroom was foreign, but restoring to him. He looked at the crucifix. It was a long, lean peasant Christ, carved by a peasant in the black forest. For the first time in his life, Bachman saw the figure as a human thing. It represented a man hanging there in helpless torture. He stared at it closely, as if for new knowledge. Within his own flesh burned and smouldered the restless shame. He could not gather himself together. There was a gap in his soul. The shame within him seemed to displace his strength and his manhood. He sat down on his chair. The shame, the roused feeling of exposure, acted on his brain, made him heavy, unutterably heavy. Mechanically, his wits all gone, he took off his boots, his belt, his tunic, put them aside, and lay down heavy, and fell into a kind of drugged sleep. Emily came in a little while, and looked at him, but he was sunk in sleep. She saw him lying there inert, and terribly still, and she was afraid. His shirt was unfastened at the throat. She saw his pure white flesh, very clean and beautiful, and he slept inert. His legs, in the blue uniform trousers, his feet in the coarse stockings, lay foreign on her bed. She went away. End of chapter 2 End of section 4